Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Technique Podcast, the series where we speak to artists about technology. I am Sam Fry and today we are getting sceptical. Today's episode features an interview by my co-host, Richard F. Adams. He is speaking to researcher, technologist and creative Tim Kinberg. The episode is recorded in the Pervasive Media Studio in Bristol's Watershed, which is an amazing community of creative technologists, some of which you can hear hustling and bustling around in the background. As for Tim, he is a resident at the Pervasive Media Studio that finds himself at the intersection of technology, creativity and art. Here is Richard to tell you a little more. Tim is a really interesting person that I wanted to speak to because Tim's coming at things we talk about on these podcasts from a slightly different angle in that we've talked with people who would out now say they are artists first, whereas Tim is very much a genuine sort of mix and crossover, having a a very strong technology background at PhD and beyond, but actually who has come across, if you like, the divide into making tools and things that artists can use for artistic purposes and therefore by default, you know, is, is interested in the practice of art. So let me tell you a little more about Tim. Tim is a researcher that has an interest in mobile technologies. That has led him to found and create the social video platforms Evolve and Nth Screen. In fact, I went to a talk by Tim on his Nth Screen project around five years ago, and I still think about it as it's a really interesting project. But don't worry, he talks about that in this podcast. He is a technologist at heart, having worked on cloud computing back in the 1980s before the web even existed. So nowadays, alongside his project work, he gives talks about technology, although from a sceptical perspective, hence the title of this episode. So let's get into it. I'll hand you over to Richard and Tim, sat in the Bristol's Pervasive Media Studio, as Richard begins to introduce Tim further. I'll do a brief introduction, but you can say hello, Tim. Hello there. <laughs> you sent me a biog and it talks about a PhD in computer science. Senior lecturer at Queen Mary's London, visiting professor at Bath and in Copenhagen. Obviously got the academic publications that go with that. He owns patents and has authored a a number of publications and books. And was a senior researcher at HP Labs in Palo Alto, California, and then Bristol, which is what I assume brought you here. It was, yeah. Was that the HP Labs? It was HP Labs, yeah. What did they do there? I went out there at a really interesting time, actually. I went out there in 1999, which is, gosh, that sounds like a long time ago, doesn't it? It is a long time (laughs) ago. No, me and you are veterans, like. (laughs) And I went there to join a programme of research into called Cool Town, which is a very sort of naff. I always thought it was a bit of a naff name. Well, it, 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 well it sounds slightly better now than it did back in 99 to my ears. But So actually, the Internet of Things, that phrase, which we think of as being more or less current, of course, goes back to 98, 99. That's when that term was coined. 
and we were doing the web of things. So I joined a project which was making the physical world around us give us links to itself as manifested on the web. So everything had a web page, is the kind of mantra. Right. Everything has a web page. So your salt cellar has a web page, you know, your letterbox has a web page. I have a web page. This room has a web page. There was a page. lot of things like that around at the time. Yeah, well, <laughs> well actually, it was seminal in, 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 in that respect. It no, was, I, I, yeah. I, I, I know, but I mean, there was a lot of things around in that dot-com boom where people were trying to really use the web in different yeah, ways. Yeah, completely, yes. In a way that we now use IP addresses. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, there are still people working on that, on that paradigm because really? I think there's a conference that meets regularly on the web of things so called yeah. we never called it that at that time it was a kind of utilitarian thing that wasn't really about experience it was more about I've got my mobile device with me of course which in those days wasn't even a mobile phone it was because they weren't capable of this it was a personal digital assistant PDA wow. and we uh, you'd wander around with your PDA and, you, and your PDA would sense URLs around you and display those web pages to you how would it sense them? well so they would be coming out of infrared beacons on the walls, for example. Okay. Or you, you touch your phone with an RFID reader and you get the URL effectively by, by a radio frequency basis. Or indeed a barcode. And we were sparing, you know, barcodes, which whatever one thinks of barcodes, they're, they're here. But we were using them back in about 2000 you know, as, as a way of, of giving you a link to something. It's interesting how something so small as a barcode, though, has been so incredibly useful. It has, but not really for that purpose. I mean, people still use it. I was walking past Zara, the fashion outlet, yesterday, and they got a massive QR code in the window, and I actually tweeted it, like, you know, haven't given up yet. No, well... But why haven't you given up yet? Because actually we all know it doesn't work. Well, the QR code doesn't, but the barcode itself... The barcode itself, for retail purposes, you know, for utilitarian purposes, yeah, yeah, it's fine, but... But, but as, a, as what we used to call a physical hyperlink to the world, it, it just doesn't work. No, it it's doesn't. massively used in the Far East in particular for payment, and that works. Again, it's very functional. But, and even they have QR codes everywhere, but actually nobody reads those QR codes. They just are not read. I don't know why people use them in marketing, but... They're, I, they're it's convinced. A, it's an interesting thing, though. I, I kind yeah. of feel there's a parallel with blockchain. Mm-hmm. In that blockchain's been massive hype, people are saying all the time, you know, we can do this, can do that. But actually, it's going to come down, and it's already settling down as a technology that allows us to do records of transactions. Very functional, utilitarian. Yeah. And it's actually not very good at that, I have another, yeah. I, you know, I have a whole blog article about that, and I give talks about blockchain for sceptics. The interesting thing about that paradigm of used to be called ubiquitous computing, also was called pervasive computing. And now here I am, we are, sitting in the pervasive media studio. And the genesis of that name is kind of interesting because it comes from pervasive as in pervasive computing. But media, that word is there in order to talk about the creative applications of those sorts of technologies. So the things that the likes of me have been researching on for decades, how can you put those technologies to creative use. And that's a double benefit, I would certainly argue, because from the arts side, you have new ways of working with, with media you know, that, that, mm. that these new electronic forms give you. And from the technology side, by working with artists, they have 
um, what I always call unreasonable expectations of technology. And I don't mean unreasonable in a pejorative sense, but they, from the technologist's perspective, we sort of know the limitations, or at least we think we know the limitations of our technologies, but with them we, we work in quite a, a narrow scope. When an artist comes along and says, yeah, but can it, could you do that all across an entire city? You first say, well, no, of course you couldn't. And then you think, oh, actually... They call uh, us tooth suckers. Yeah, yes. So, so, so this, this place is to, is, is to stop us being tooth suckers, mm. but to be people who enter into a joint enterprise, very optimistic enterprise, about what you can do creatively with technology. My sort of modus operandi, I suppose, is I, I work with somebody on a bespoke installation or application, mm-hmm. and then the commercial side of me, which barely exists, actually, I've, I've discovered over, after many years I'm not really a businessman, but I try and platformize the thing that I've made. So I make something, and then I try and turn that into a platform. In other words, something that's more widely applicable in the hope that I can make a living out of providing that as a service to lots of people rather than one artist but which retains some kind of, well, I'd like to think, cutting-edge aspect to it. Your social video platform, for instance, Vault, could you talk a little bit about that? That's yeah. quite an interesting idea. Yeah, so that's an interesting example, really. And that prior to that, there was something I call nth screen, as in any number of screens. And the idea was, I was trying to think about what people could do with their mobile phones together. And I was thinking, the first thing I did was, well, if you could synchronise everybody's mobile phones in a crowd then in principle, and I did this, you press play and then all the mobile phones will play. So for example, actually I've resurrected that recently and I had a, a crowd, and I think it was about 50 people, but there were voices coming out of different phones in the crowd. I think in a way the time's more right for that. Yes, exactly. So because sometimes... Because the ubiquity of, of exactly. smartphones. Exactly, and, and, yeah. and more powerful networks, you know, to deliver the bandwidth and everything. But, so that was the original paradigm was you press play and everybody's phones play together. Uh, I work with Hazel Green, uh, mm-hmm. and I know we're that, with, yeah, yeah, we're both friends with, and um, she developed a piece which was birds singing out of everybody's phones. So you press play, and all the phones in the crowd suddenly have birds tweeting out of them, and birds flying virtually from phone to phone. And so I did that, and then I realised that actually, just as you can press play on one phone and everybody presses play. You can press record on one phone, all the phones will record. So I built this system called Nth Screen, which did the playback first, but then does the recording. The idea that crowds could capture everything from multiple points of view. We made films, we made experiences like this, and it was lots of fun. But the thing I found about Nth Screen was, as I say, everyone loves it and nobody uses it. (laughs) Because if you get people to do it, they just go, that's amazing, that's like magic, all the phones do something at the same time. But it was too many steps away from what people understand how to do. And, you know, you and I, in order to do it, we both have to download the app, we have to coordinate. So, you know, it's too many steps. Too many barriers. People. And I think, I yeah. mean, I, as I say, as you know, I've worked in art, I've been an artist, you know, since I left school, obviously, but I've worked a lot in tech, you know, and I'm a, an advanced leading edge technologist by day. 
and I've never yet found a complicated technology that takes off. Yeah, exactly, and uh, yeah, and it's good <laughs> reason why it hasn't. I mean, yeah, maybe it will one day because if usage proceeds one step at a time towards your paradigm, then it will take off. You know, but the I'm, concept really great. I mean, for instance, I've got you know I write electronic classical music, and I've been thinking about ways to perform that. Mm. Yes. For instance, and this immediately you're talking. I think okay, yes. you right. can have different instruments. I could take fragile a track mm. and actually spread it around the room and do it yeah. spatially because I'd be thinking about another concept where yes. people walk into the room as the music's playing, and every time that each one sits down, some of the music stops, yeah. and the end of the performance is when the last seat is filled. Yes, you know, just to annoy people for having bought a ticket. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but this is actually things like that. In a way, their time is yet to come. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's true. And to cut a long story short, I, I thought, well, supposing you film together, but you take away the synchronisation, because the synchronisation is the difficult bit, and supposing you use an ordinary app. So I built this system called VORB, where you, whereby you could upload your videos to a social media platform. It started out being Instagram, and then it became Twitter, and with a certain hashtag. And then I collect those videos and make an interactive sphere of the videos. It's just a new way of displaying the videos to people, mm. really. And in fact, I did that, again, talking about the, from bespoke experience to platform. I actually did that originally in 2015 when it was 800th anniversary of Magna Carta, and I was commissioned to engage young people around the world about human rights. So I asked them to film very brief films, Vine-style film, films, about the human right they cared the most about and to film themselves in a certain context doing that. And so I gathered all these videos and I had to figure out what to do with them, so I made a globe of videos. And that was, that was the art piece, if you like, that I made, which I then realised, as soon as I'd done that, I realised, well, that could have been any hashtag on any issue. And it kind of solved the end-screen synchronisation magic-slash-problem. <laughs> So now people can, you know, in their own time, film, upload, use a standard app that they have on their phone anyway. And so that's VORBS. It's another way of people filming collectively. Well, I'm really interested because obviously you're an incredibly advanced technologist working with artists and therefore you are by default helping produce art if you're not actually directly producing it. But I'm very interested because one of the things I, I think about a lot of digital art, or what is called digital art, is that it's often very, very pretty and beautiful, but sort of lacks uh, an emotional punch. Mm, mm. I wonder, you know, how you see, because you're building tools for artists to use, how you feel about that notion. Are they using it, the people you work with, using it to try and provide a punch? Because I know you're working on projects uh, with communities and... Mm you know, uh, literature and things like that. I think so, yes. I mean, I suppose the, the thing that I've been involved with most recently that I, I would say did have a punch, definitely. Uh, I worked with Caroline Williams, who's a theatre producer, and she her commission was to link young people in Bristol, Kigali and Kampala and to have a simultaneous performance between those three places. And, and she brought me in as somebody who could build... I referred to a portal earlier, that's fine. Yeah. To build, build the portal, if you like. It was sort of Skype on steroids and, and with all the Skype aesthetics taken out 
and some more fitting aesthetics put in. And it was a very fragile thing that I built because the network connection between here and those two countries is not brilliant. But we did it as part of the performance. And um, it was actually the culmination of the performance was the connection. So essentially you were here, obviously I was in Bristol, I wasn't over in, in Africa. We had this performance by young people in Bristol and we then had the culmination at which they and the young people in Uganda and Rwanda got their mobile phones out and I'd built this software to run from the mobile phones. They were basically roving cameras to one another with a, with a big video projection above and they did very simple things like all um, put the phone on the ground and just wave their fingers above the phone. You could see the fingers of these other people. And it was just a little piece of choreography, for example. You know? But it was really powerful when it happened, you know, because we'd been thinking about this link to young people in other places. And then all of a sudden, there they were, or rather their Wegman fingers were, above the mobile phones in, in those two cities. And quite lightweight technology, really. I just used a bit of open source and sort of cobbled things mm. together. And then, but that moment was powerful. It was about linking and about the fragility of linkages between people in different parts. Of it's the almost world. like what you're talking about to me as an artist is that the, if you like, the digital computing sort of art boom that we've been sort of living through for the last 20, 20 years, finally, in some ways, we're seeing signs of maturity because that's an example of where creatives are almost not bothered about the technology and are yeah. literally trying to make a, a meaning. Yes, exactly. And I think that's, that is... I would say that most people in this place in the pervasive media studio get that, that it's not, certainly not about the technology, it's about, it's about meaning. I also think, I mean, one of the things you made me think of while you were describing this issue of pretty versus meaningful, I, I'm, I'm minded of what people are doing with uh, machine learning at the moment. And I don't like that stuff. I mean, people are making these sort of dreamlike images and things like that. And I just think... But it's actually cliched. I mean, I mean, it's it's actually about a sort of it's ursatz. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's cliched. Exactly, and and because there is the, nothing new in it. There's yeah. new in the way the machines work. It. But the output is not. But the machines have not novel. attained meaning, and we're no, they we're, we're we're light years away from them at, from attaining meaning, and and despite the hype and. That's something I've 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 been working with, uh, well, collaborating with with some people here about about how art responds to algorithms, how art mm. should respond to algorithms, and I'm very interested in the paradigm of the beginning of last century, when you have Dada and surrealism responding to the sort of mechanized age of uh, uh, age of war that they found themselves in, and. I'm very interested in the question of what's surrealism for the 21st century when it's not like bits of machinery and bombs, it's um, algorithms and surveillance capitalism and the misapplication of algorithms to questions where social justice arises. All those things about that I think people are just starting to realise about how these algorithms are being misapplied. How should we respond to that as artists? And it seems to me, I'm just writing about this at the moment, actually. Um, in fact, I, I, I've given a, t a talk at this Four Skeptics series on AI for Skeptics, and one of the points I'm making there is how absolutely amazing we are at symbolism. You know, we create these unbelievable symbolic 
system. Well, I, I spoke language is symbolic. Language, uh, mathematics, symbolic, logic, mathematics. You know, all those things. All these things that we are magic. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, all these things. We're just unbelievably powerful at doing those things. And those algorithms are unbelievably pathetic at doing those things, yeah. actually. And it feels to me like we need to do a tilt back to us. Do you know what I mean? And, and then instead of plugging ourselves into Facebook and Twitter and becoming you know, scrolling devices that are part of algorithms, that we should be re-centering ourselves on, on, on the means that we can create by all means, using technology. But as I think that's the general material. Yeah. I was thinking, yeah. all my own work at the moment has been about distorted selfies because I see selfie culture as being a, one of the major movements of the last decade. Yeah, you know, yeah. it is a more, You know, your feed is a selfie. Your, you know, the pictures in, the, in there are selfies, etc., etc. And you present yourself in a very managed romantic, idealised way. Mm. And I'm doing the opposite. I'm doing the Dorian Gray mm. sort of inverse of all the nastiness pulled out into the mm. images. And I just think sometimes that we are finally now coming out of that age. And I'd agree with you. I think we are about to wake up. You know, we, t- we use the word woke all the time, but actually it's coming. And I think artists have got over the hump. Yeah. I'm hoping we've got over the hump of the technology. Mm. And that it just goes back to being about... I mean, it's interesting you say about the surrealism. The very first piece of major interactive computer art I made was about taking analytical cubism and adding fourth and fifth dimensions mm, mm. through technology because mm. they were breaking space down and mm. all of that sort of stuff. So could we add time, could we add interactivity yeah. to the same things? And I think by doing that, you're anchoring yourself firmly in the culture and the context. And I wonder if a lot of digital artists of the last generation, if you like, have missed that and have actually just been buried in the tech culture. I guess I feel like, kind of, who am I to pronounce on digital artists, <laughs> on the one hand? Well, I, I would like that, yeah. I'd rather put it this other way, that, that I would kind of appeal to digital artists, precisely because they are dealing in digital, in digital using digital forms, to react to the more prosaic and crass forms of digitisation that are pervading our world now, namely social media platforms and, and, you know, algorithmic decision-making and all those things. And I guess, you know, I I feel like artists really, you know, it's it's such amazing material to work with. Mm. You've just referred to really questions of identity, right, because, Mm. you know, we're projecting our identities in new ways through these systems, our identity is being quantified through these systems in order that algorithms can make decisions, quotes, about us. It really is a question of human identity, I think, in our, in our, in our century. You know, we're faced with these massive political problems at the moment, and God knows there's, there's a lot for artists to respond to, but I think underlying it is this tech solutionism, as though that's yes. just going to solve all these problems. And we know it's not. it's not. It's not remotely capable of doing it by itself, you know, as though that was the thing. Technology is the thing, and it's not about human systems. And I really feel like that is a place for digital artists in particular, but all artists to respond to.
couple of years ago, they, they did a, the BBC did a live programme from the mini factory at Cowley, where they make minis. And they were showing you how the factory operated, and they had people waiting at the gate for the bell to ring, and they'd go on and do their shift. And what struck me most about that was the entire factory was a robot. Yeah. And the humans were just basically pushing the last things into place. Yes. And they were almost verifying it rather than yes. actually doing it. Yes, um, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, that's the sort of unintelligent automation, yeah. because, of course, there's no intelligence at all. Well, it's, 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 it's just running a, just running a deterministic yeah. algorithm. But, but it's, but it's that, you know, that it, there is all of that. And again, it makes you think about the value of us and what we, you know, we are, the, we are these astonishing beings, and these are just simple machines, you know, so... Let's not get this thing the wrong way around. Well, I think, I think one of the things you've talked about that sort of comes out of this, and I think you were heading towards this when I sort of interrupted slightly, but um, the notion of a new art movement yeah. being needed to respond to 21st century capitalism or to sit in tandem with next stage capitalism as part of it. Yes, and in a way it's like silly to call for a new art movement because, you know, you can't just... Well, that's not true. People did. Well, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose suppose that's true. Actually, I mean, I mean, you can. I'm not quite sure how you go from the manifesto to make it make it happen, but people did. You're right, actually. But I mean, if you think about the sort of Dada and surrealist preoccupation with the unconscious, you know, again, unconscious is something that we human beings, remarkable, astonishing creatures that we are, do have both conscious and unconscious processes, which you you'd be hard put to say of a machine, certainly with anything like current day technology. But is, is, so is that, you know, should we go back to that idea that it's the irrational and the unconscious that we need to counterpose to, you know, machine learning algorithms? Or is it something, is it another quite completely different aspect of ourselves? And I just, I feel like this is such a rich place for us to explore and, and for, for radical art to explore. You know? Well, I've lived my life like most people in digital media on social media the last 10 years, and my approach to it and profile has changed considerably over that time, but I've often said, and I've been meaning to write this as a story, you know, what would my Facebook profile be like if it was literally a living version of me? Mm. Would it be the drunk me? Would it be the unstable right. me? Yeah. Because it's obviously picking up on certain things. Yeah. And as we know, these, you know, when you put advanced systems in, you don't yeah. get knowledge. Right. They infer things. They don't actually understand things. Yes. So it's all probability yes. based, and that can be wrong. Yes. So, I mean, I think subversion is an important word to use here because yeah. the technologies that are being used to, you know, survey us, you can subvert most, a lot of them. You know, there are things like, obviously we are being viewed by cameras all the time and, and people are running algorithms on the images of those cameras to identify people mm. and everything. Go to a place like China, I mean, that is... Well, was it trialled in Bristol? Yeah, I, I I'm not sure. Actually. I think it was a couple of years ago. But supposing, <laughs> I, I wear glasses, you know, if I had yeah. infrared LEDs in my glasses, you wouldn't be able to see me no. on cameras, right? So, you know, little things like that. So I, lo- I love that idea of subversion. Also, for every AI researcher, so-called, or machine learning researcher who is producing algorithms that um, can be used for surveillance, well, come up with the algorithms for countering the surveillance. I mean, you know, you. And the one Doesn't it go back to the Thomas Crown affair with everybody dressed up in the bowler hat and the suit? So they can't yeah. So, so there's all, you know, that's that's a response. Right? Yeah. But there's things like, I mean, so for example, I mean, machine learning algorithms to that are supposedly identifying 
objects in pictures, are not, you know, I think it's well known now, it's very easy to make them fail. You, you adjust things in very slight ways, and those algorithms will just fall over completely and have no clue about what they're looking at, because they're not really based on... There's no symbolic understanding of those images. It's all about statistics on pixel values. It's probability. It's prob yeah, yeah, statistics on pixel values. Nothing more. I mean, this is something I think yeah. sometimes people don't understand. I think people who don't work with advanced tech, yeah. even more so. Exactly. So how do you communicate that to people? How do you communicate to ordinary people who are constantly being... I mean, I'm always wanting to throw my radio across the room because I listen to the World Service. And as far as I can tell, anybody who's got an AI product, I just did quote marks in the air then, they get to just come on the World Service and talk about it and make ridiculous claims about it and not, and not challenged on them. You know? But, I mean, that's a, that's uh, a challenge for journalists, isn't it? It's a challenge for journalists, but... but again, specialist you know, journalists. But how do you reach people in a creative way to sort of satirise that, really? You know, and well, I'm more interested, it. actually, in a way, and I think it backs up what you said about subversion. How do the people on, you said No West Media Centre, how do the people on No West Estate understand this and what it's doing to them? And they're, well, they're, that's you an know, interesting, yeah. How interesting do you communicate to them? Because they're actually question, yeah, the majority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and in an age of Brexit, I mean, you wonder who you can influence in any way at all about that. Well, you can clearly easily Perhaps not with facts. facts. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so, yeah, so let's say we can't influence people no, with facts. Let's say we can influence them emotionally. That's yeah, exactly yeah, the key yeah. with Brexit. It's yeah. pulled on the heartstrings. Yeah, so... so you know, are there emotional ways to appeal to people in terms of positive emotional ways to appeal to people mm. in terms of sort of making them feel more empowered in relation to this machine-like world? But this, this almost comes back to my question about then full circle, about putting emotional punch into art. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's not emotional punch, it's emotional pull. Yeah. Yeah, actually well, it, indeed, exactly, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe that's the and role of that, maybe that's the new aesthetic. Yes, used for a positive, yeah. you know, used in a positive way. So if you think about all these algorithms that are nudging our behaviour in certain directions all the way, can you have an art movement that nudges them back again towards healthy directions where we do care about environment, we, we are proactive in relation to helping our environment, we don't allow ourselves just to sort of sit there and have our jobs taken away, and so forth. You do talks on for sceptics, and you've mentioned this a couple yeah, of times. Yeah, yeah. And what you, what's that about? Yeah, so, so I mean, I, I begin to do that because I feel quite strongly about hype, you know, as a technologist who knows something about how technologies actually work, you know. So I've, I've done blockchain for sceptics, AI for sceptics, Facebook for sceptics, which I did with a colleague, Marcus Gilroy Wire here in the studio. You could do all kinds of things for sceptics, obviously. I mean, it's like the opposite of four dummies. So if you think about the Four Dummies book, which is, here's this piece of tech that actually is intellectually paltry, but, but you need to swallow it because it's tech and it's good for you. What's the opposite of that? The Four Skeptics is, is, this is the actual value in that technology, such as it is. This is the agenda of the people who are pushing that technology at, at you. This is an explanation of the technology in ways that you can understand and let's have a think about creative ways of responding to that technology. So what are your typical audiences for that? It's funny, I've been... I've been I mean, I've given the, t I give the talks here in the pervasive media yeah. studio. because that's open to the public, isn't that's, it? It's open to the public on yeah. Friday, Friday lunchtime talks here at the studio are open to the public, so people are all welcome to come. 
But I've also been invited to give, in particular, the, the blockchain one. Oh, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've given it to the British Computer Society. Yeah. You know, I've given it various various other forums. And I think, you know, these are, these are things that people ge- are genuinely curious about, partly because they're curious about whether they should invest in Bitcoin or not. I think that's one of the yeah. agendas. So, but I do find that people are resp- very responsive to those talks, you know, and I think, well, I think it's... I, I, I feel that when something's being hyped, 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 it's kind of it's kind of refreshing to have somebody who's saying it's bollocks, basically. So as long as it's yeah. constructive. As long as it's constructive, yeah. yeah. So I mean, you know, and I deliberately, you know, I am fairly rigorously in opposition to some of these things for various reasons, you know, which I which I'm able to tell people about. And you can if you go to my website, you can read my blog articles about it. You know, so that's what for skeptics is. You know, you know, again, it's something that. That could be a movement in itself, you know, people could be yeah. doing all kinds of things for sceptics, given their own point of view, their own attempts to explain that technology in such a way that people feel empowered to criticise it, which obviously is the important thing, you know, um, instead of this magic thing. That, that yeah, it has rather been treated as magic. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, it's worry. Uh, as I say, you know, my, my feeling is that so many people have just gone with the magic of tech yeah. and ignored the actual... Yes, emotional impulses, yes. and it's really nice to meet people who say no, push back on that, yeah. and, and go for the human. Yeah, I'm hardly alone in that. I mean, there was, yeah. obviously these technologies have a lot of critics on on the internet. You know, and obviously I'm hardly the first, but I just I I just wanted to, to add my own contribution. Well, I think there's a difference between being a between criticism with a small C where you're just pulling things apart, and actually criticism with a big C where you're an, analysing something. Think. Yeah, and, and trying to have a creative yeah. response to it is, is the a balance. Yeah. Criticism of yeah. something is much different to just being critical. Yes. Honestly, what difference could this all possibly make? In the end, we're all going to roughly the very same place. And some will be dead or in pain, and a will be dead, and our minds are willing to try to That was Richard F. Adams with Tim Kinberg at the Pervasive Media Studio in Bristol. Hopefully the sound of background interruption wasn't too off-putting. Then again, isn't that part of the idea behind the space? Can I just say that yeah. the, one of the mantras of the pervasive media studio <laughs> is that we are generous and interruptible. So, <laughs> so we've just been generously interrupted. Or disrupted. <laughs> or disrupted, yes. <laughs> Thank you very much to Tim for being part of this episode and sharing his thoughts on creativity, art and technology. And he has one last thought for you. Ask your listeners to come up with this idea. What oh, is it? Absolutely. What is the new surrealism? Will you be the person to write the manifesto for the new surrealism for the 21st century? Because please do. And if they want to reply to you, where can they find you? They can find me by Googling Tim Kindberg. And K-I-N-D. B-E-R-G, yeah. There's another one of me in Cincinnati, but that's ah. not, that's not, I'm not that one. The one based in Bristol. <laughs> yes. But it's, it's um, and your website, by the way, is Matter... Matter2media, that's the number two. So matter with the number two media.com, yes. So get in contact with Tim if you've got some thoughts around that, or if you're interested in any of the other work that he mentioned. Now, we release these podcasts once a month, But actually, we've been quite busy over the last few weeks recording a few of the next episodes. And we've got some great episodes coming up, including people who work in Hollywood, people at the leading edge of digital creativity, and people that are doing all kinds of new pieces of research. So if you're interested in this kind of content, 
make sure you subscribe to these episodes on whatever podcast player you listen to this on. And while you're there, give us a quick five-star rating. It takes you just one second, but it helps us incredibly. So that's all the time we've got for this episode. Thank you again for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. We are, of course, thankful to those that created music for this episode, including Sean Miller, who created lots of the jingles. And this last song has been by Laxadaisical. Otherwise, thank you again for listening, and I look forward to speaking to you again in a month's time. In the meantime, take very good care of yourselves. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.